I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. It was Friday, July 8th in 2005 when 450 sheep leapt to their deaths in the Turkish village of Givas. The chain reaction started when there was a single sheep that took the leap off of the cliff, enticing nearly 1,500 others to follow. And according to the local newspaper, by the time 450 had died, the pile of sheep at the bottom of the cliff had apparently grown large enough to cushion the fall somewhat, resulting in the saving of the other 1,550 that continued to jump off. The town was devastated. There's nothing we can do. They're all wasted, said one shepherd who was a member of one of the 26 families whose sheep had been lost. This was a company where the average, or a country where the average GDP was 2,700 U.S. dollars and about $100,000 worth of sheep were lost. So it was a big, big deal, these 450 sheep falling off a cliff to their death. But if the chaos of our world is any indicator, they are not the only ones who need a good shepherd. Today is the fourth Sunday of Easter, typically known as Good Shepherd Sunday. And the theme of Good Shepherd is just pervasive throughout Christianity, and for good reason. It appears four major times in the Old Testament, five major times in the New Testament. The image of Jesus carrying a sheep over his shoulders animated early Christianity. It appeared in mosaics, in sarcophagi, in frescoes, in jewelry. The early historian Tertullian even mentioned how common it was for the Good Shepherd to be etched in the side of communion cups in the early church. So why did the early church find the image of the Good Shepherd so compelling? Well, in part, it was because of the intimate care that this metaphor communicated about the love and the protection of God for His creation. A prayer from St. Jerome in the fourth century captured some of this sentiment. When he prayed, O Good Shepherd, seek me out and bring me home to your fold again. Deal favorably with me according to your good pleasure till I may dwell in your house all the days of my life and praise you forever and ever with those who are there. But we are not first or fourth century agrarian people, generally speaking, most of us. I don't even know a shepherd. I've never, I don't think, met one in real life. So how can we enter into this truth? How can we know God as the Good Shepherd intimately? How can this truth become something more than what we simply needlepoint on pillows? Dallas Willard once said, the Lord is my shepherd is written on many more tombstones than lives. What would it take for us to have the truth of the Good Shepherd inscribed on our very lives, not merely our deaths? Well, perhaps such questions presuppose one other single question. Why on earth should we follow this Good Shepherd 
in the first place? Psalm 23 gives us the classic answer in the form of where this shepherd will lead us. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. He revives my soul and guides me along right pathways for his name's sake. And yet the psalmist asserts that this good shepherd is not only there in moments of celebration or in times of provision, but that he is there in the deepest, darkest place of suffering. If we have eyes to see, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Today we hear from the Gospel of John, one of the most famous I am sayings. In the course of John, Jesus claims to be a door, a loaf of bread, a road, a light, a grapevine, and then a good shepherd. And this is not the typical way that people speak about themselves. But Jesus makes this claim, and those first followers believed him to be the good shepherd, not merely because he said it, but because he lived it. You see, Israel had a long history of bad shepherds. Actually, exclusively, they had a history of bad shepherds, which is what we hear from Ezekiel 43. This is a kind of Old Testament commercial clip for shepherds gone wild. It reads, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought even what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. This so rightly angered God. People put into positions of power and responsibility tend to grasp beyond what God intends for them. And we all know bad shepherds, metaphorically at least, either those who are truly malicious or simply those, you know, who are incompetent. I came across an article this week about a shepherd in Spain who fell asleep on the job and his 1,300 sheep wandered into the city center causing complete chaos for the town. The article was, you can't believe this, entitled, Sleeping Shepherds Prompts Sheep to Behave Badly. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's the cheesiest thing I've ever said in a sermon. I just couldn't pass it up. But you know, our cultural shepherds have gone to sleep. Many of our church shepherds have gone to sleep. But honestly, should we be surprised? I don't think we should, actually. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but we're all sinners in need of God's grace. We're all sheep who have wandered. It's not uncommon for us to run off the cliff. And so our trust should be placed first and foremost in the good shepherd in whom we find true power, the kind of power that Jesus speaks of, which is on loan from the Father that he embodies in his ministry. 
I want to say more about this kind of power here in a moment. You see, we have a long history of going the other way, don't we? Of seeking to take over the reins, of seeking to be sort of in our own minds the good shepherd, of trying to do life in our own power. But the church must learn that in grasping after power, we lose control of power. We become less than what God intended for us. This has been the story since the first time of Adam in Genesis, the first human priest, so to speak, over creation. He grasped after something. He, he took, he sought a form of power that was not his to have. In other words, he ran right off the cliff, and he led a whole lot of other people with him. We, or at least I, have continued often in these rhythms, and in doing so, we fulfill what the poet Milton wrote, by seeking to become more than human, we become less. But Jesus, being fully God, shows up and becomes fully human as the new Adam, and thereby Christ emerges in the midst of the first century and all centuries as the Good Shepherd. And in this, he's totally unique. No other religious leader has died for his followers in such a dramatic way. This is why he refers to himself as the door as well. He invites us and all would-be disciples to follow him through the door of faith, to go where he goes, although imperfectly, that is us, to care for other lost sheep with him. It's the book of 1 John so beautifully highlighted. But we have to do so in a way that mirrors his power, one of self-giving, not one of taking for oneself, not one of seizing, not one of grasping after, like the cursed shepherds that the prophet Ezekiel identified. You know, the shepherds gone wild. This shepherd, the good one, Jesus, shows us what true power looks like, self-offering. This is my body, given for you. It takes on the wolf. There are at least two competing visions of power, I would suggest, in the world. There are more, but at least these two. There's power by grasping, which I've spoken of just a bit. But really, this is no power at all. This form of power was clearly clarified by uh, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who identified the single most important drive for all humans to be what he called the will to power. And he looked on Christianity with pity. So he wrote the first principle of our humanism, the weak and the failures, or whom he viewed as the weak and the failures, shall perish. He wrote, they ought to be helped to perish. What is more harmful than any vice, he asks? practical sympathy and pity for all the failures in the weak. Christianity, he concludes. He believed that true success came from affirming the self, first and foremost, seeking to seize and grasp, and that Christianity was actually a stumbling block towards his worldview because it was built on a founder whose strength in ministry was manifest in weakness, in laying down his own life. You know, he was right, at least in part. Grasping after power sets off a chain reaction of mistrust, of sheep following one another frenetically off the cliff. The power of God 
in laying down his life unlocks the true meaning of life and leads to human flourishing. And this is God's power that comes through the model of the good shepherd laying down one's life. This is the alternative vision to Nietzsche, and its greatest argument is the life of Christ. I am the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. And what is amazing is that this shot through the ancient world like a meteor on a clear night. And the early church followed his example by doing the same, again, imperfectly, but laying down their lives, modeling true power, again, the opposite of what we see in Ezekiel. So what difference does this really make then? On the ground, day to day, in our families, in our vocations, in Louisville, in Harrods Creek, in Prospect, in our schools. Well, I'll give you one example that's near and dear to my heart. In his book, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, the religious sociologist, Christian Smith, who teaches at UNC Chapel Hill, by the way, defines the dominant understanding of God among younger Americans as what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. And its vision of God is this, that God primarily is there to draw us into good morals, that God blesses and takes to heaven those who try to live good and decent lives. That's the moralistic piece. Secondly, that the central goal of life is not to sacrifice or deny oneself, but to be happy and feel good about one's self. That's the therapeutic component. And thirdly, that although God exists and created the world, He doesn't need to be particularly involved in our lives except when there is a problem. That's the deistic part moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is the vision Christian Smith says so many of our young Americans, but really all Americans, have of God. It's not that God doesn't want us to be happy or something, of course, but actually happiness comes on the far side of something else, of laying down one's life. So what's happening here? The church is so often transmitting a vision of a weak, dispassionate, uninvolved God who is there simply to justify what we already believe about the world. And this too easily allows us to see ourselves as the shepherd of our destiny while God is off sleeping in another pasture. But we all know what happens when shepherds sleep. And that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the vision of the God of the Bible. The vision of God as portrayed in Holy Scripture is not some sort of cosmic Xbox player outside of the game, as it were, or luck dispenser. He's not attached to us merely by like a cosmic joystick controlling the world, but otherwise not involved. The story of Scripture is that he's entered into the script, so to speak. He's entered into the play. He has shown us how to follow him in dependence precisely because he is the only truly good shepherd whom we know we can trust. But he, he will travel the, the distance from heaven to earth to save just one lost sheep, and he will even give his life to do so. And it is this unique claim that disciples are called to emulate. Far from being oppressive, living in such radical givenness to others actually will set us free to be fully human. If this is 
our primary pattern of discipleship, we can change the world by God's grace. But if it's not, then we'll just default to the counter-narratives of power offered by the likes of Nietzsche, and like sheep without a shepherd, we'll run right off the cliff. But thanks be to God that Jesus has come after us. In fact, he's gone ahead of the sheep, throwing himself off the cliff so as to cushion our fall. And we do fall, and we will fall again and again. I will fall. I will fail you. But I hope at least to point you ever and always to the truly good shepherd. You see, the good shepherd is, ironically, the sheep that is led to the slaughter. So that even in our failing and our falling, we can learn the power of falling into the grace of God. The true power that transforms sinners into saints. This is the power of God. By God's grace, that which we thought was certainly the end of our lives can actually become the beginning of a new story. By the power of the Good Shepherd, we can come to know a God who seeks us out precisely in the moment when we feel more lost or stuck than ever. And for this, thanks be to God. Thanks be to our Good Shepherd.